This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is brilliant. His name is Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm guessing you've probably heard of him before. But before we get to my conversation with him, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Theory, who we partnered up with to bring you today's episode. The research and development team here at Goop spends a lot of time thinking about how we can formulate beauty and wellness products that work from the inside out. Along these lines, Theory is a brand we've admired for a while. If you're not familiar, let me fill you in. Theory is a family-owned and operated wellness brand. Their MO is to enhance health and beauty through the use of dietary supplements that are carefully developed in-house by their team of experts, using high-quality ingredients from around the world. Theory's collagen powder, for example, contains 18 amino acids that are the building blocks of healthy skin. It includes 6 grams of hydrolyzed collagen peptides per serving, plus hair favorite biotin for added beauty benefits and vitamin C to support the body's natural production of collagen. The best part, it's super easy. You can just add a daily scoop to your morning coffee, smoothie, or beverage of choice. You can find New Theory online and in person at your local health food and wellness retailers. For more info, just head to utheory.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Malcolm Gladwell is a journalist, author, and podcaster. He's been writing for The New Yorker since 1996. He's the author of Outliers, Blink, The Tipping Point, David and Goliath, and his newest book called Talking to Strangers, which I just read and came to love. And today he's joining me to talk about it. Today, Malcolm and I talk about the grueling process of writing a book and his sources of inspiration, and he gives us a look into exactly what went into this one. Things like how people are terrible at discerning if someone is lying, which it turns out is actually for the good of society, which we'll get into a little more later. We talk about everything from drinking on school campuses to over-policing to Amanda Knox. After all, Talking to Strangers is a book that covers a wide range of topics, so we had an equally wide-ranging conversation today. On one level, this is about how individuals misperceive each other, and there are terrible consequences to this. But on another level, it's about about the way in which we have chosen the strategies we have used in contemporary law enforcement. Okay, let's get to my chat with Malcolm Gladwell. So, Malcolm, speaking of talking to strangers, Uh, I'm not a stranger. What do you mean? We've met before. We, we, We went on a date. No, we didn't. 15 years ago. (laughs) 
You serious? Yes, we worked in the same building, and Meredith Con Rollins uh-huh. of Lucky Magazine. Yes, a good, a good, good dear friend of mine. And I think I feel like Kim France was involved in this decision, set us up on a blind date, and we went to Art Bar. Are you serious? I, I, I remember none. This Just is because so I got you so drunk, you blacked out. No, you out. didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, we went to I, Art Bar, and then we went to a now a, a Swedish restaurant that was there for five seconds. Really? Yes. God, oh my God this is, clearly I was not memorable. No, 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 no. I have a terrible memory. We talked I've about been, shopping. You were very interested in my job as sport, and you really? had bought some new yellow and black sneakers oh my God. that you were concerned about, and we talked a lot about Canada. <laughs> I am in I am I am in awe of your memory as much as I am mortified by my lack of one. Well, to be fair, you were Malcolm Gladwell at the time and I was, you know, an editorial assistant. Don't say that. Uh, no, it's true. <laughs> it was um it was fun. I do think I went to the bathroom, we had dinner and then I came back and you were like in such a rush to get out of there. I was like someone sent you some sort of text. That really? It was 15 years ago. No, we didn't have phones. Do we have phones? Yes. This was in like uh what is year is it? 2005? There was an iPhone. Was there not an iPhone? No. Oh, it was like a, oh, I had a Palm Pilot. Don't go like claiming I got some text. I, it was, I, it was trio. I had a trio. I did not have a trio. What did you have? Wasn't I didn't that know what, Isn't that what Condé Nast gave everyone? I didn't know they gave me anything. Nothing? No. What? You just communicated on a desktop computer? Uh, people did in the day. Back in the day? Yeah. You were a perfect gentleman. All right, moving right along. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congrats on your new book and your podcast, King of the Podcast World. Am I the king? I don't know. Well, Joe Rogan is the king. Joe Rogan is the king. We're all pretenders next to him. Yeah, but maybe over time you can you can put up it, have your own YouTube channel. Well, never. But I'll never. You know, we're doing very very different things, so it's not. Have you been on Joe Rogan? I will go in November. Oh, nice. Looking forward to that. Are yeah. you going to talk about psychedelics? Well, I wouldn't have anything to say since I don't know the slightest thing about them. Really? No, I don't. I'm not really a drug user. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. So let's talk about talking to strangers. Mm-hmm. Since now we know we're not strangers. Apparently we're not. So you could just have made that up. <laughs> I didn't make it up. Obviously, it was more memorable to me because... You, I knew who you so were. I'm so embarrassed. Why? Okay. You probably. How many dates have you been on in your life? Mm, I mean, not, not an enormous number, but I mean, you probably think probably many. No, not necessarily. Really? I mean, why would you think I've been on a lot of dates? I don't know. You seem that's a not the veteran. issue. The issue is, I literally, <laughs> I, I erase my my brain is a hard drive that gets erased every couple of months. Really? I don't remember. I have problems with faces. I don't. I had that face thing, so I can't. I don't have the. I, I can't identify people because I don't remember what they look like. But how, when you're in the process of writing a book, mm-hmm. which is obviously incredibly research intensive, yeah. are things flitting in and out of your mind? Or are you like, oh, I remember that incredible study? Well, I write, write everything down. Right. But even so, I would imagine when you're working on something like this, you're filtering like, an entire career's worth of input in some way. I guess, although... Or do you just start over? kind of start over. I mean, I don't, I feel an awful lot is lost along the way. It's a very kind of imperfect, messy process writing a book. There's no, some people are very, like we were talking earlier about my friend David Epstein. David, when he writes a book, masters a whole field of research, like everything. Yeah. You know, thinks about it for months, distills it, and gives you the picture. I don't do that at all. I kind of wander in and find a little corner and get interested and go on a little digression. And so I'm much my, that's why my books are, you know, they're like, they, they follow a much more kind of idiosyncratic path. Right. No, it's true. When I, when I started the book, I was like, Sandra Bland, like how, where are we going with this in, in the context of lying? Mm -hmm. And then by the end, I thought that was very well done, not to give it all away, but I was like, oh, this whole thing has come together and this one chapter, but it's a really interesting book, but almost every chapter could be its own more comprehensive book. Yeah. So we, the book was affected a great deal by the fact that I've been doing this podcast for the last four years. And so it's, 
it is a series of stories, of connected stories, but you could read the chapters almost independently of them of each, of each other and they work in the same way that like in revisionist history you know i do 10 episodes a year and by the end they sum up to something hopefully many of the themes like reemerge this book's a little more connected but it's i'm very enamored of the kind of storytelling where i i tell you a complete story and then i tell you another story and i sort of let the the links between them kind of come out naturally. I let the mm-hmm. let the I, li- I like the, the I like the reader or the listener to have to do a little bit of work. Mm-hmm. I want them to think, and I don't want them. The old model of writing books it struck me that you were trying to cram an argument down someone's throat, mm-hmm. and this is much more. The most interesting responses I've had to this book are where people are arguing with me mm-hmm. in a kind of interesting way, in a way that I want them to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, there were definitely, it's very provocative. There were moments where I kind of wanted to punch you at times. Really? Well, I mean, not, maybe not that violent, but, <laughs> but there were moments where I'm like, what the, where the fuck is he going with this? Like, yeah. We can swear on this podcast. Oh, really? But yeah, it was sort of like a wedding toast in some ways where you, mm. some, like the best ones I feel like launch with some sort of random anecdote and then they leave it alone until the end and then it, yes. it's like the perfect summation yeah, of yeah, a yeah. person. That reaction I take as my, as high praise. That's what, that's the reaction I want. It's like, I always tell the series, woman, I was in Houston, you're not from Houston. No, Montana. Montana. And I was in the fancy part and this very, very fancy woman comes up to me and I saw her approach. She's like in her sixties with like the hair, mm-hmm. the Range, Ro- Range Rover. She comes up to me and she says, I disagree with everything you say, but I love your work. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that is, I love that. Because what that says is she keeps listening. She disagrees with where I'm going, but she wants to keep listening. She she finds the journey of exploring a perspective different from her own Mm -hmm. worthwhile. That I love. Yeah. I, I like that response better than I love your stuff and you've convinced me of everything. Yeah. I feel like, because she's arguing with me, you know, in a kind of useful way and she keeps coming back. Yeah. She still wants, you know, she wants, and that's, these are, there's no way to, on, if you're writing a book about, you know, everything from Amanda Knox to police shootings to pedophiles to spy stories, there's just no way I'm going to, Please everyone. Please everyone. No, but you are, it is, you are so wildly influential. Obviously I'm not, you know this, having a young child, I'm, I'm like, damn it, Malcolm Gladwell. When I put him in kindergarten last year as a five-year-old turning six and he was with seven-year-olds who were towering over him, yeah. I hold you personally responsible for that. <laughs> well, but now, so there's a, that's actually an interesting little thing because that bit in Outliers where I talk about the consequences of being the youngest in your class that was really meant for if your child is growing up in a you know low income home struggling with a learning disability has you know a parent in jail being the youngest in their class on top of all of those other right disadvantages is just too much right but it's you know if you're but now it's been it is levered it is like everyone looking for the ultimate advantage should, for their child your, your you've child, changed your sure has every advantage in the world yes. the last thing your child needs is an additional advantage in fact it might be useful <laughs> for your child to have a little bit of a fair a little battle fair right? it's true no i put him in there knowing i was defying your best advice so let's talk about liars uh-huh so i i the, the whole idea well, I think it's interesting, the idea that, one, we want to believe that everyone is honest. Mm-hmm. And many of us, I guess a majority of us, lack the mm-hmm. ability to discern when someone is lying. Yes. That's true. I mean, there are a few people who are outliers. Very few. Very, but basically, we may think we know when people are lying, but basically we have no clue. We have I no mean, clue. No clue. And you have to have sort of a paranoid mind frame in order to be exceptionally good at... Yeah. So... We're all bad at it except for a few people, and you don't want to be like those few because the cost of being the kind of person who can detect lies is really high. Yeah. You don't want to be the suspicious person. You don't think that some people, and, and I'm saying this as a woman, who, and I feel like we have high 
we're more intuitive and more in touch with our guts. Do you think, is there a difference between the sexes, I guess? And do you think that there's a version of some people just being slightly more intuitive? They're not going to catch every single lie, nor would you ever want to, because who cares? But where they catch the major ones? so, uh, So the way I would say that is being intuitive or empathetic or sensitive to someone else's emotional states is one thing. Mm-hmm. Being able to discern whether they're lying or not is another. And I would say the first is far more important. So if you are an intuitive, sensitive person, you might pick up on the fact that I am uncomfortable or unhappy or anxious or any number of emotional states, which those don't help you decide whether I'm lying or not, but they tell you something that's probably a lot more important. They tell you where I am at that particular moment. And Mm -hmm. They inform the way you deal with me, where you, if you, if you understand that I'm unhappy, you might, if you're a sensitive person, adjust the way you talk to me to account for that fact, to cheer me up, to, mm-hmm. you know, be more gentle or delicate. But it doesn't help you in knowing whether I'm flat out lying about where I was last night. Right. And I, I think we overrate the, you don't, it doesn't actually matter if you, the lying part is just not that crucial because most people in your life do not lie to you. Mm-hmm. Not tell small lies, right. like white lies, but the number of people who set out to deliberately mislead you is incredibly small. Yeah. And But the number of people who have complex emotional states and, you know, and who you can deal with better by being sensitive to those is very large. Right. So you want what you have. You don't want the, the other there's thing. No, there's no value in having the other thing. Do you know Jeff Hancock? He's a professor at Stanford and he studies lying and social media. He's mm. an, also a Canadian. Oh, wow. And he actually worked for Border Patrol on the Canadian side. And Oh, tri- yes, 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 yes. I have heard of you him. You would yeah, love him. Yeah. He was on our podcast. And, you know, I can't remember the exact stat, but the number of lies that we do tell each day is quite staggering. He calls them butler lies. I mean, it's mm. this idea of, you know, I can't have dinner with you tonight. Really mean, actually is, I don't really want to. Yes, I physically but like so, am available. But. I would not call that a real lie. So <laughs> it's a butler lie. It's a butler lie. It's a, yeah. a lie intended to preserve the social fabric. Exactly. And but. The, but the real, the Bernie Madoff lie. Yeah. I'm investing your money and it's earning twelve percent, and in fact, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. That lie's rare. Or the the Larry Nasser lie. Right. I'm treating your child for their injury, and in fact, I'm sexually abusing them. Right? In that's front of you. In front of you. That's a very different kind of lie. Yeah. But Hancock is interesting. He's absolutely right. I remember, I, there's something I read by him about how when he was a customs official, he had idea, had some ideas about what were the kind of tells of liars, yeah. and they were all proved false. Right. But what they have determined, which is interesting, is that particularly, I think they do work with companies to, to identify or help identify psychopathy, which is actually very prevalent in, on executive teams and in leadership. Like yeah. a lot of people have psychopathic mm-hmm. tendencies and that the way to catch people is through text, because people, and, I, and for exactly the reasons that I think you describe mm-hmm. in the book, mm-hmm. we think that we can understand how honest someone is based on their facial features and what they're expressing and psychopaths have that mastered but when they have to put things in text or writing they start to fall apart yeah yeah they they're they lose the shield and it's easy to decipher the lie this is a tangential point but one of my british publishers is this incredibly thoughtful intelligent perceptive young woman and I was talking to her, and she'd just gone to, like, some corporate training session. And she said she had been given one of these tests of psychopathy, and she had scored, like, the max. I mean, she's in <laughs> Ted Bundy territory. And, like, it just made me – I mean, she's so clearly not that. Mm. Who knows, Malcolm? Well, so, no, my – I just think that there's there, – I, 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 I will – I'm a little bit suspicious of the kind of accuracy. Of the, I mean, I think they might be useful, but I would really wonder that – if they're catching, uh, well, I would refer you to your book, where you explore all of these people who defy deception. I mean, who defy what is the word for getting caught? Yes, yes, yeah, who? who yeah, no, there is a a large universe. But the thing about the argument I'm making, so you know, for example, I tell that story about the spies, yeah. who spy for a decade at the highest levels of U.S. intelligence. No one has any clue that they're doing it. The mistake is in thinking that it's something 
that their success as spies is a, is a function of their own evil genius. Right. It's actually not. It's just a function of our blindness. They're, a lot of these guys are terrible spies. They're just not... Like the woman who I profile, Anna Montez, the famous Cuban spy, who is maybe one of the most dangerous spies this country's ever had. She spies for 10 years. She finally gets caught. And they discover when they catch her that she has her codes that she used for communicating with her Cuban masters in her purse, right? We're not talking about James Bond here. Right. And, and the, the radio that she uses to communicate with them is in a shoebox in her closet. Like, she's just a bumbling. And the reason she gets away with it for 10 years is that we're bad at detecting falsity. That, you know, the, the idea that the onus is on us, the listener, not on the particular special gifts of the deceiver is really interesting. Mm-hmm. It says we're dealing with something that's fundamental to human beings, not some kind of rare form of evil genius. And you argue that it's one of it's one of our better qualities that we yes. prefer to trust. Yeah. You you know, think about this, you're a parent. Mm-hmm. If you did not the phrase I use in the book is default to truth, meaning that your assumption when you communicate with someone is that they are telling the truth. This is something that almost all human beings are hardwired to do. And it means that we, and what it means is that we are capable of living productive, happy lives. Like how many times during the course of the day as a parent are you required to implicitly trust someone with the life and happiness of your child? Constantly. The whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. Have you done background checks on every one of your child's teachers? Have you, when you put your child on a school bus, do you run the name of the driver through a database to make sure he doesn't have DIY? Uh, DIY. DIY. <laughs> DIY would also be a problem. You don't want him like fixing the bus himself. <laughs> no, like, and it, when you go to the doctor, do you like when the doctor says your child has got an earache? Do you say before we go any further, I'd like to see your, you know, your license, license, and your grades from med school? No, you're. You are so the only way it's possible. And also, if you were that way, think of the damage you would do to your child. Right. Your child would be crippled by that kind of paranoia and defensiveness. So the only way to, to succeed and be happy in the world is to say, I'm going to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And that will mean that once every now and again, I'm going to get deceived. I'm fine with that. Right. right. Like my dad was the epitome of this. And he, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And he, if you asked him for money, he gave it to you. And he didn't try to figure out whether your motives were correct. And I remember once we had a cousin who came along who took him for like $10,000, when $10,000 was a huge amount of money in our family. Like it wiped my parents out for, and he was, he was fine with it. He was like, you know what? I would rather be the generous person. Yeah. Who then the person who suspects everyone are trying to trick me, and it's not on me. It's on. I think that was his attitude. Ultimately, it's that is a sign not of my weakness, but of the weakness of the person who tricked right. me. And no, he, he went on with his life. And I feel like you make a great case for sort of when it becomes a societal ill near the end of the book when you do talk about policing and this idea of working off the assumption that everyone is carrying a weapon or everyone yeah. is essentially up to no good. It's necess- a dangerous is thing. a dangerous thing. For, for, for police officers. And we have trained, it's the big argument in the book, is that we have, in the case of police officers, trained them out of this trusting presumption and that, that is a, that's a problem. You cannot have a police force which suspects its the citizenry of, you know, of evil doing at every every turn because the number of people who are actually engaged in evil doing in a society is incredibly small. Right. Right. And you do a lot of damage to society when you unleash police with that attitude on the general population. Right. And it seems like it's the ultimate perversion too of innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. And obviously in the in, in putting them in these incredibly high pressured, intense situations where there's some sort of expectation that anything good will come out of it. Yeah. I thought that was an amazing moment in the back of the book as you sort of bring all of these things together. In terms of, I also want to talk to you about, and we've had Lisa Barrett-Feldman on the podcast too. Oh, you have? Yeah. Oh, yes. She's lovely, yeah. The loveliest. So, But I think that research about how we don't actually emote, Mm -hmm. how we're also programmed to believe that there are certain facial signs that we make when we're happy or sad or in Mm -hmm. grief, 
and how rare it is to actually perceive those on an actual person who's not a famous actor yeah. is important. Because for whatever, we, we, why do we believe that? Where does that come from? Well, she would have been a better person to ask than me, but many different <laughs> places. But, so I do that thing with an episode of Friends, where yeah. actually Lisa, I asked Lisa, do you know someone who can analyze this episode for me? Because there's a whole language of, of, of notating and identifying facial expressions. It's, it's called FACS. It's a, you got to study for like two years to master it. And so she, Lisa found me, a former student of hers, who was a, a fax expert. And I had this woman named Jennifer Fugatti go through two minutes of a Friends episode, which is one where, you know, it's, it's a typically insanely complex, right, Ross, Rachel, Phoebe, something, something. Ross discovers that he sees Chandler and Monica making out. Making out, yeah. yeah. And the question I asked her is, can you go through this episode and will you let find out every time that an emotion is expressed by one of the actors, or is felt by one of the actors, tell me what's going on in their face. Right? And what she found was that every time any of the actors experience an emotion, that precise emotion is perfectly displayed on her face. So when, when Monica is surprised, her jaw drops, her eyebrows go up, and her eyes go wide, right? When Chandler is angry, his, you know, his mouth hardens, his lips, lips harden into a, and his brow furrows, and his eyes narrow. And, and th- what they're doing is they're giving you a precise emotional guide to what's going on in the show, which is why, by the way, even though Friends episodes have these preposterously complicated plots, you can almost follow along. You can follow along because they're giving you this second-by-second, completely perfect picture of what's going on inside their hearts. And I think if you watch a lot of TV, you come to the conclusion that that's what real life is like. And that if, you know, if you are, if you're listening to me right now and you are irritated, I will be able to see irritation on your face. Right. Right. Or, and the truth is, and this is Lisa, Lisa Barrett's, her life's work is proving this. It's just not true. Right. People do not universally and accurately represent their emotions on their faces. So if you carry that expectation around, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to write off people who, you know, might you're going to think that someone doesn't like you when they do. You're going to think that someone is lying when they aren't. You're going to think that someone is unhappy when they're happy. You're going to think that they're, that they're perfectly comfortable when they're uncomfortable. I mean, you, can't, you cannot use this as a kind of shorthand to the way someone feels. If you want to know how someone feels, you've got to do the work. Mm-hmm. You have to talk to them and listen to them and observe them and do all this. You can't just say, oh, I look at your face right now and you're just not having any of it. Right? <laughs> No, I agree. I just think it's interesting how we have adopted that, mm-hmm. like why we would choose that. Pro- it's that we could take what we see on screens and apply it to real life, even though it's not borne out. Like, it's interesting that there's no correction for us. Yeah. Like that we don't realize yeah, it that. Is, it is interesting. It's like, it's one of those bizarre, and you would think, so there's a story, I don't tell in the book, but there's a, you're not a basketball fan, are you? No. Okay. There's a very, very famous basketball. I am tall, but I, no. <laughs> There's a very famous basketball player called Kawhi Leonard. Might be one of the best basketball players in the world. And when he was coming out of college, there was a team that wanted to draft him, and they met with him, and he got really nervous in the interview, and he was sweating underneath his armpits. And the team said, oh, we don't want this guy. He's, we want someone who's cool under pressure. You can't play professional basketball if you're this nervous. Turns out he's the coolest cucumber, like, in the whole National Basketball League. But in that moment, talking to some crazy adult who'd never met before, he got nervous. It meant nothing. Right. Or maybe he, was, maybe he wasn't nervous. Maybe he was just hot. Mm-hmm. He's wearing a suit. He doesn't normally wear a suit, and he was sweating. You know, there's a million reasons why he might have appeared to be a certain way. But by, by trying to draw too many conclusions from what was going on on the surface, the general manager of that team made a catastrophic mistake. He passed over one of the greatest basketball players of his generation. Now think about that in terms of, like if you're having a job interview, any kind of job interview, you're hiring, you're enormously focused on the way the candidate is behaving in the moment. Mm -hmm. But what Lisa Feldman would say is, are you sure that the information you're gathering in that incredibly narrow window of time is an accurate representation of the way that person really is? 
right? Are you sure that when they, you know, when you ask them a direct question and they look away and lick their lips, they're not being deceptive or avoiding the mm-hmm. question. They're just being thoughtful. Maybe that's the way they look thoughtful. Right. Or right? it's cultural. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are so many miscarriages of justice based on just our preference for people who are, what's it called, matched? Matched, yes. Yeah, who are matched. I mean, like the Amanda Knox. Like Amanda Knox. Is ex- such a wild example. Yeah. So, Amanda, you know, I've been emailing with Amanda. Oh, really? Are you guys best friends? We're not best friends. But, <laughs> you know, so she read the... I have a chapter on the Amanda Knox case, which I think is a classic example of how Amanda Knox did not behave the way people thought someone whose roommate has just been murdered ought to behave. And as a result, they locked her up for four years, even though she is 100% innocent. I mean, she was just an immature, slightly awkward girl. She was a girl at that point in her life. She was 18 from Seattle, who's in a foreign culture, and they don't know how to read her, right? Right. And there's a tremendous miscarriage of justice in that moment. And if you look back, so I went back and I read, you know, it's like 10 books written on the Manton Knox case and like a million articles. And I read a huge chunk of them. And all of them persist in pretending there is something sinister about her. Not all of them, but overwhelmingly. There's, you know, is there some like dark thing inside? No, there isn't. She's just a little bit, she's not even weird. She just... Awkward. At that point in that in her life, did not behave the way we want people to behave in that moment. You know, she's not the kind of person when she's grieving who falls silent and sits quietly in the corner. She's someone who acts out in her grief, who gets angry, who gets emotionally expressive, who that doesn't make her guilty, right? So we made now think about that problem. Oh, I was going to say what I meant. So I've been. She emailed me because I asked her if I could use some audio of her in my audiobook. and. We had this conversation, this kind of email conversation. To your point about how useful text is, you know, if you email with her, she comes across as this highly intelligent, incredibly thoughtful, sensitive, like like impressive. The last thing you would think is that she is the caricature that was painted of her in this trial ten years ago. But that's because I'm seeing a much truer side of her when I'm communicating with her, you know, where there is time for her to think about her response, to Mm -hmm. express the way she really feels in a forgiving environment like email, not in an unforgiving environment like a police station when you're 18 in a foreign country the day after your roommate's been murdered, right? That's a really, really, really unfair place to kind of make a judgment about somebody. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We'll get back to Malcolm Gladwell in just a second. When we scout out new beauty and wellness products, we tend to gravitate toward the things that are effective but also easy to use, ones that allow us to feel healthy and beautiful from the inside out. This is the kind of thought process behind New Theory's line of collagen products. New Theory is a family-owned and operated wellness brand with a solid line of health and beauty products. They've developed an extensive range of clinically supported collagen goods, ranging from tablets to powders to liquids and quick dissolve mixes, so you can get the many benefits of collagen in the delivery format of your choice. One of the heroes of the line, though, is U-Theory's collagen powder. One of the natural effects of aging is changes in skin collagen, and this powder supports the production of healthy new collagen with six grams of hydrolyzed collagen peptides.
peptides per serving. It also has biotin and vitamin C, which are included to give your skin a supportive boost. Theory's collagen powder comes in several flavors, including an unflavored option, which I like because I can add it to pretty much anything. But you might love the vanilla-flavored powder in your coffee or morning smoothie. Either way, it's an easy daily dose of collagen for your body. And as you likely know, collagen lays the foundation for healthy skin, hair and nails, plus strong bones and joints too. To learn more about Theory or to find their products at a retailer near you, head to utheory.com. Over the years, it's become more important to me to prioritize my skin and personalize my routine. Waleda is a skincare company that makes that easier. All of their products are free from parabens, phthalates, and synthetic preservatives and fragrances. They're made up of oils extracted from plants and flowers, and each ingredient is carefully selected to work with your skin. Because, let's face it, skincare can be a little tricky. It can be difficult, even frustrating, to sift through so much information on how to best care for your complexion. Waleda gets that your skin has specific needs and that they can change depending on a host of factors, like the season, where you are in the world, and how stressed you are. So they found effective botanical ingredients to support your skin wherever you're at. And Waleda has designed a quiz that you can take to find the flower best suited to bring balance to your skin with their new skincare profiler. Developed with nearly 100 years of holistic beauty knowledge, Waleda believes in the power of a personalized skincare routine and that customization is the key to a healthy, radiant complexion. And I've been experimenting with my own skincare routine at night. To make things easy, I've been using Waleda's one-step cleanser and toner, and then I use Waleda's Sensitive Care Calming Oil. It's a light, fragrance-free oil made with almond extract. And then I'm off to bed. To take Waleda's skincare profiler quiz and start customizing your own routine, head to waleda.com. That's W-E-L-E-D-A. And use promo code GOOP20 for an additional 20% off your purchase. That's G-O-O-P-2-0. Back to my chat with Malcolm Gladwell. It is interesting, like, what, how to, like, what is the truest expression or essence of someone and how can we tap into that? Like, that seems to be sort of at the core of the book. Like, how do we really know what someone's, motivations are what they're feeling who they are which I know can't be answered but it is that it's like and I and the alcohol chapter is interesting in that sense too because I feel like one of the age-old debates is when someone gets drunk and I know you you're specifically writing about when people sort of get beyond the point of consent Mm -hmm. and and to a point of blackout but when someone's drunk I vote is it is that an unfettered glimpse at who they really are or is it the opposite? I think it's the opposite. Yeah. I think that's what's so dangerous about alcohol is that we assume that, it, you know, how many times have we said so-and-so got drunk and t- finally told me, the, you know, the truth about X, Y, and Z. So we had this assumption that what we're getting when we communicate with a drunken person is some kind of distilled essence of who they really are. And that the opposite is true. You're not, you're getting someone who is not them. Mm. Because what's happening when you're getting drunk is you are basically, the phrase I use in the book is, is drunkenness is myopia. Your brain, your higher order cognitive functions shut down. And all you're left with is the thing directly in front of your face and the, mo- the exact moment that you're in. Whereas real human beings are people who, are, who communicate with the future in mind and with the broader context in mind. I know... You know, in this conversation with you, I'm in the moment with you, but I'm also aware that if I say something outrageous, there'll be consequences when this thing airs, right? So I'm thinking about now, but I'm also thinking about two weeks from now or whenever it is you put this podcast up. And I'm thinking about the way you think about me when I leave the room or mm-hmm. the, so, and that's, that's what all of us do. That's what it means to be who we are. We're all people who do that delicate balancing between our impulses and our longer-term considerations. Being a parent, as you are, is that times 10, right? Right. You know, half the time you're thinking about what does this mean tomorrow, next month, next year, 10 years from now? And that's, that's really where your true self emerges, mm-hmm. right? So the idea that you can get blackout drunk and expect anything meaningful to come out of your conversation or your communication in that state is ludicrous. And yet, 
that's what's happening on college campuses. Yeah, and people are expected, understandably, to be responsible for their actions when they have limited control over their yeah. actions, which is why well, the, no one should drink. The, no, people... <laughs> the responsibility thing is huge here because what we have to make it plain to people is getting drunk is going to radically change who you are and the decisions you make. And so the decision of when you drink and how much you drink is an, a crucially important decision. You are solely responsible for that and you need to take it very seriously. And it's not a, you know, doing repeated shots is not a lark. Mm-hmm. It is a potentially life-changing decision. It could, it both increases your chances of committing a criminal act and being the victim of a criminal act. It's not something to be taken lightly. And I yeah. feel like if we were to go on a, we went to, you know, USC on a Friday, not to pick on USC, but on a Friday night, we would see lots and lots and lots of 19-year-olds not taking that decision seriously. Right. It's interesting how, was it a survey of college kids when mm-hmm. sort of asking them how to decrease the rates of sexual violence? Yeah. And alcohol didn't really factor, right? Yeah, they didn't. It's funny, they do the, so this is a, a survey of, on the one hand, sort of adults, people mm-hmm. over 35, say, on the other hand, college students. And they ask them the same set of questions about sexual assault, right? And one of the questions is, how important do you think moderating alcohol intake on campus would be to reducing the rate of sexual assault? Adults overwhelmingly say, oh, yeah, like, if you deal with alcohol, you will bring down... And college students overwhelmingly say, no, I don't think it has anything to do with... So interesting. That's a huge generational gap here that I think is, is, is we need to address. Do you think it's wisdom with age, or do you think that there's just a different perception where the, t- the college kids think someone who would do that would do it, whether aided or unaided, by alcohol? Yeah. Don't know the answer to that. I think probably a little bit of both. I think, yeah. there's, I think there's insufficient appreciation among the young about the extent to which alcohol doesn't, doesn't kind of reveal you. It transforms you. Yeah. And I also think that, yeah, if you're 50 years old and you've seen, what you've seen. a life of consequences of people, you know, really the bad things that excessive alcohol use can bring, you're a lot yeah. more aware of of the downside. Not to sound like an old lady, but it's shocking. I mean, when you detail what these kids are consuming in the course of an evening, I couldn't I would not be able to to hang. <laughs> you think it's a good thing you're not in college anymore? It's a good thing I'm not in college. I mean, like straight liquor. You know what? This guy I know whose daughter was about to go to college. We we're talking about this, and he said something that sort of broke my heart but also kind of Gave me new faith in the young generation. So his daughter, he said, my daughter's going to college, and she she doesn't drink. And so her first thing was, I don't want to have roommates who drink. So she found on, now, these, now you can have match online. So she matched herself with a roommate who doesn't drink. And he said, well, I said, well, how, what's their social life like? He goes, oh, what they do is they get a beer bottle, and they empty it, and they fill it with water. And she, he said, she's been doing this from the beginning of high school. And she now, she... No, she goes to parties. Everyone thinks she's having a grand time, and she's just drinking water straight out of a beer. And part of me thought it's sort of heartbreaking that you have to go to that length. But I also love the fact that she's hacked it, right? She's kind of— That's brilliant. It's kind of brilliant. She's like, you know, she's like wise to how she can— She's super hydrated. I'm sure her (laughs) skin's amazing. She has perfect sleep and— And having a grand time, I'm sure. Yeah. uh, But not making a fool of herself. Yeah. Yeah, And just probably witnessing— And probably saving lives, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. You think about it, that I'm very, very happy there is somebody sober at parties like this. Because I I think, you know, I saw when I was doing the book, I was looking at the statistics. I didn't put them in the book, and maybe it was a mistake. If you look at the statistics on sexual assault on campus, and these are not, there are crackpot statistics that are... these are ones from like NIH where mm-hmm. they do very, very serious surveys and they cross correlate it with all. They're out of control. It's out of control. It's, we're talking about tens of thousands of cases a year. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's mind blowing. Like the idea that this isn't something that we're talking about all the time is crazy. And, you know, given the dimension of the problem, I'm grateful that there are, there are women like this, this young woman that this guy was talking about who are, who can at least be a, a, you know, a sober voice at some Yeah, no, and a witness and yeah. someone who can yeah. ac- exit people. And no, it seems like there should be a le- legions of people like that 
undercover <laughs> co-ads. <laughs> when I was in college, all parties had a sober adult. Really? Yeah. Which I think is, in retrospect, didn't seem weird at the time. In retrospect, now I realize that that should be the standard. Like, yeah. it's, like if there had been a sober adult in the room in that, at the Stanford frat house, like I write, write about that Brock yeah. Turner case, then it, it may not have happened. Just think about how many lives would be... I mean, yeah. that event, you know, was an irreparable... Totally. ...caused irreparable harm to at least two, if not more, young people's lives. And if there's an adult who just comes up to Brock Turner and says, you're really drunk, and she is... Incapacitated. Incapacitated, you need to go home right now. Yeah. Where are your friends, you know? That's what that needed. And I don't... In the absence of drinking more responsibly, you got to put an adult there. Yeah. And that's not asking... I don't think that's asking a lot. Yeah. No, I agree. So I when, do sound like an old man, don't I? The no. two of us are like... Old people. We're like old people. <laughs> and then and then they're listening to their rock and roll music. And I find that very upsetting. And they do it so loud. <laughs> Why can't they turn it down? <laughs> so when you write something like this, what what's the... Like, how how do you want this to influence culture? Old people at parties? <laughs> as long as I don't call it like the Malcolm Gladwell, you know, person at the party. No, I just want Thanks people Thanks for to... ruining college, Malcolm. <laughs> what do I want from this? I just want people to have a... I want people to kind of not to be complacent about things like how police officers treat African Americans yeah. or how sexual assault happens on campus or why pedophiles get away with what they get away with. I mean, there's all these kinds of instances where we have to find ways to cope with deeply problematic yeah. people in our midst. And I want to give them... Well, let's know. talk about the Sandra Bland chapter because mm. I think it was, again, I mean, there are so many and, and many are appropriate theories about mm -hmm. sort of what is happening and mm -hmm. why is policing so out of control. But I thought, I think the way you bring all these strains together is... Mm -hmm. pretty one of the most compelling versions I've read so can you take us sort of through that yeah so she's so this is a case it was one of that string of high profile police cases of a couple of years ago Ferguson you know Eric Garner mm -hmm. we remember them all to my mind it was the one of the most upsetting it was a young black woman it's in a small she's driven down from Chicago for a job interview in a small town in Texas she gets the job. She's leaving campus. She turns off the campus into a, onto a highway. Cop pulls up behind her. She moves out of the way without putting on her turning signal. He pulls her over, comes up to the window. They have a conversation, and they, it just goes awry. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is captured on the officer's desk, dash cam video. So we have the whole thing. And they have this conversation. It gets, goes off the rails. They start yelling at each other. He drags her out of the car. He arrests her, and then she commits suicide three days later in her cell. And it is a kind of story that is fascinating and disturbing on many different levels. One is that the police officer completely misunderstands her. So he is tasked with talking to a stranger, and he jumps to a series of conclusions along the lines we were talking about. He reads her and concludes that she's dangerous, and she's not dangerous. She's upset. Mm -hmm. She's the opposite of dangerous. And there's a crucial moment when she lights a cigarette and she's trying to calm her nerves. You know, people have forgotten. One of the main reasons people smoke is that nicotine is a very powerful means of, 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 of bringing your emotions under control, right? She tries to, and then he like thinks that what she's doing is an act of defiance. And just like, it's just, this officer is just like missing everything. On one level, this is about how individuals misperceive each other and there are terrible consequences to this. But on another level, it's about, about the way in which we have chosen the strategies we have used in contemporary law enforcement. Because the officer was, did what he did in that case, not because he was a bad apple or was some kind of weirdo or was some kind of like rogue cop. He was doing what he was trained to do. And we've now been training police officers to go out in the world and pull over people for incredibly trivial reasons in the hopes that they could find evidence of some more serious behavior. And that has gotten out of control. And so I, I tell that story first as an example of kind of the 
flawed interpersonal dynamics, the, how hard it is to make sense of a stranger in a limited amount of time. And then I get to this question of, we have to have a philosophy of policing that accounts for the fact that a police officer cannot come to an accurate judgment about a stranger in 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. No one can, right? It's unfair to ask police officers to give them that responsibility. So the officer in that case was someone who, over the course of a typical day, he's pulling over, ton, like, not just, you know, every hour, two and three people for incredibly random, trivial, trumped-up reasons. Why? Because... He's, you know, he wants to find out whether you've also got guns in your car or, or drugs. Mm -hmm. And it means he leaves almost, in almost every one of those instances, he doesn't find anything. So all he's doing is going around essentially pissing off yeah. innocent civilians in search of some elusive criminal prey. And that's a, he's not, like I said, he's doing that because that's the philosophy of law enforcement in which he was trained. And that's just bananas. I mean, it's just bananas. Right. And it's all, it was predicated on a, on a model of policing that did work, which found that not only were there not necessarily bad neighborhoods and cities, but there were like bad blocks, Blacks, right? Yeah. So, that, yeah, there's this fascinating theory of criminology, which says in any given urban area, more than half of the crime takes place on less than 5% of the city blocks. So when we say an area is dangerous, we don't mean the whole area is dangerous. We mean that there's a couple of very specific parts of any city where a lot of the crime happens. In those crime-ridden areas, aggressive policing makes sense. It makes sense nowhere else. Right. And what we're doing is we're using aggressive policing everywhere. And right. that's our error. That's our error. I thought that was very well done. Well, thank you for being here. It was Thank a you. pleasure to see you again after all these years, reunited in the Goop conference room. <laughs> you're just in, you're enjoying this fact a little too much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about him at gladwellbooks.com. That's G-L-A-D-W-E-L-L. -L. Make sure to pick up a copy of his newest book, Talking to Strangers, on sale now. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. How do you motivate yourself on the days you don't feel like working? Well, Carla, <laughs> I feel like I'm having one of those days today. I think I just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You know, there I think and I think it's a I think it's actually a really good and interesting part of life to do things that you don't want to do and to see if you can find curiosity and presence and see if you can, I always try to reinvigorate myself during the day, but sometimes you just can't and you're just like, I got to get to the end of the day and then have a nice big glass of wine. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.